As we continue our worship, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. And we are going to be breaching the last chapter today. Genesis chapter 49 going into chapter 50. And we'll read the entire text today. Genesis 49 verses 29 through chapter 50 verse 14. Genesis 40, 29 to 50, verse 14. Let me read that for us. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of the weeping of him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found Pharaoh, I mean, favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is Beyond Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a very grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and to all who had gone up with him to bury his father. I have an acronym for you this morning, and I am interested in knowing how many of you who are here today, uh, could actually identify it. It's pretty simple, only four letters. Y-O-L-O. Y-O-L-O. Since it's such a small group with us today, we're going to be interactive. Sorry, folks on the camera, you can't participate, but you can do it in spirit. All right, so Y-O-L-O, how many of you know what that means? Oh, good, about half, which is exactly what I figured. Uh, if you're of the younger generation, more than likely it was easier to raise your hand. For those of you who are a little older, it may be a little more difficult when asked on the streets of Los Angeles what the term uh, YOLO, Y-O-L-O, actually meant. There were several interesting responses. Uh, one of the most natural responses was uh, many actually conjectured that it is something that you do when you yell standing on the top of a hill. Well, that's actually yodeling. That's not YOLO. <laughs> uh, someone thought it was a messed up falafel. Someone thought that it had something to do with drugs. Uh, someone else thought it was what those young people do on those texting machines. <laughs> All the way around, people were generally confused about what the little acronym stood for. But if you trace it back to its origin, it actually first showed up in 2012 from a rapper named Drake. 
He said it this way, you only live once, YOLO. <laughs> and then ever since that, everyone has just grabbed onto this thing, some using it more than others, but its popular usage expresses a sentiment that is familiar to us all. I'm going to eat six Krispy Kreme donuts, YOLO. <laughs> I'm going to spend all of my retirement for a vacation to Europe, YOLO. You get the idea. It's that there is only one life to live, therefore we need to make this life count. And the sentiment spreads far and wide. We know that there's something temporary, there's something transitional, it seems, about this life. There's something disappointing or dissatisfying with its end, and therefore we have to make what happens here and now count. And this mindset even affects Christians. We all know what it's like to have what C.S. Lewis called these longings for which no experience can satisfy. So someone eats the six Krispy Kreme donuts. (laughs) What are they looking for next? Another experience. Someone spends their retirement and goes on the European vacation. What are they looking for next? The next vacation. All the things that we, we try, all the experiences that we long for, never provide that full and ultimate satisfaction. And I would argue that we have misplaced our focus of hope. We try to find hope in things that we can see and taste and touch and smell here in this life. And yet, the Scriptures are constantly pointing us, not beyond those things, but through them to something else. And if we only are focused on that which we can experience in this life, we will be deeply dissatisfied, perpetually so. And so, the Scriptures are pointing us through those things to something else. Genesis, from the very beginning, has been doing this. It showed us in the first couple of chapters what life could really be like. It gives you the epitome of satisfaction. Everything was good. It was very good. And then because of mankind's rebellion, there was actually a curse placed upon this earth, experienced tangibly in just dissatisfaction. We know that this place that we're in is broken And we fear the repercussions of what would come eventually, even in death. But Genesis doesn't just give up there. It doesn't just cause us to despair. It doesn't just point out a problem. We've seen through 50 chapters how it is constantly pointing to something better. And that better thing isn't just something spiritual, ethereal, mystical, I think some people think that's what the Christian hope is. It's almost a figment of the imagination. You know what the hope has been in Genesis? It has been a real land ruled by a ruler (laughs) that actually results in said blessings for the people of God. A real ruler overseeing a real land. Genesis 12 is the first place this hope shows up. It's Abraham, right? And he tells him to go from his homeland to a land or a country that he's never seen before. And so here this guy gets up and he goes and God in Genesis 12 says, I'm going to give you a land. And the guy starts touring this land that he doesn't yet own, but God says he one day would own. Genesis 13, guess what? Same thing. He says, I'm going to assure you that you're going to have a land. Look, this, this place that you're sojourning on now will eventually be yours. You're going to possess it. Genesis 15, there's that weird ceremony that you may remember in which Abraham actually makes a sacrifice and he like spreads out the different pieces of the offering and God's presence shows up in a special way. And what does he do in that very time? He assures him, you're going to have land. We'll just fast forward the story down onto Isaac and God tells him the exact same thing. Specifically, God tells Isaac, don't go down to Egypt even though there's a famine right now because I'm going to give you this land. (laughs) It was a promise. Hey, I know things are rough right now, but I'm going to give you a real land in which you're going to experience blessing that will come from my chosen ruler. And then you follow it on to his son Jacob. And God says the exact same thing to Jacob, even though he was going to have to spend some time in exile in Padan Aram, which is north of the promised land. 
he tells him on his way there in that unique time, remember when he was like plumb exhausted and he's laying his head on a rock, <laughs> or by a rock at least, and it says, that, I mean, God shows him this, this angels like descending and ascending this ladder and he promises him, he says, the land that you are sleeping on I will give you. And God tells him that again. When he comes back to Bethel, I'm going to give you this land. And now we've traced this guy who actually covers about half the book of Genesis. And we've seen that this time, instead of having to flee north, he actually has to flee south just to survive. And you know what God told him right before he left? Don't worry. You're going to leave this land. But I'm going to bring you back to it. And your son, the son that he had lost, Joseph, his hands will close your eyes in death. You will come back to this land. Land, land, land. It's concrete. It's something you can touch. It's a place where you can live. That's like the hope that God is pointing his people to. And Jacob, on his deathbed, as we saw last week, does the exact same thing for his 12 sons. Like he's dying, and he's planned this deathbed speech, and he points to each one of them and says, you're going to have a special spot in the land, and you're going to have a special spot in the land, all the way down to the 12. Some of them will have better spots than others and better experiences than others, but all of them, that blessing that he passes on is that they will experience life in the land. And you're thinking like, wow, they're really big on this. And then you get to this passage, and you see that, man, this guy is obsessed in his death about where he'll be buried. I mean, that's what the whole passage is about. It's long, and the guy's spending all this time trying to convince his children, and we see the record of how his children get him to the very place that he wanted to be buried. And where is that? In the promised land. (laughs) And what we see in this entire narrative is that it is actually readjusting the hope of the people of God from the land that they're in to the land that they should be. And it worked not only for Israel, pointing them to the promised land, but this story of Jacob's burial, also readjusts the hope of other exiles, (laughs) of me and you living on this earth now, knowing that there's something better still to come. This burial will remind us of the place where our true hope should lie, God's promised land, our eternal home in heaven. I want to show you how this does that by letting the story unfold naturally before you in three acts. The first one is pretty general. Verses 29 to 33. Verses 29 to 33, you have an extended account of specific burial instructions. There's specific instructions for Jacob's burial. And, And I want you to notice how it starts off. It says, Then he commanded them and said to them. Now, he doesn't make a request of them. He actually places a command upon them. And what you'll find as you're reading through this is that, wow, he is like really specific. I mean, he, he knows exactly not only the zip code, but the very place, the very hole in the ground that he wants his body deposited. And, and what I find fascinating is like this is one of the longest sentences in Hebrew because it just keeps going and going and going with more and more like phrases to modify this one location. Do you notice all the details that he gives about the place that he wants to be buried? Notice this. I am, he says, I am to be gathered to my people. That means I'm going to die. Bury me with my fathers. Now notice all the modifiers. I'll try to count them up. In the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place, the place where they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, the place where they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, the place where I buried Leah, the field that is the cave that is bought from the Hittites. I mean, like nine different modifiers for this thing. He's like, hey, just you better not get me in the wrong hole in the ground. I want to be here. And what's the big deal about Machpelah? Who cares about that? (laughs) When you go back to Genesis 23, you remember that Machpelah, spiritually speaking, is like the Arlington National Cemetery of the patriarchs. This was the place that Abraham bought with his own money in the promised land And it was his down payment on the possession of this entire land that God had promised him. 
Abraham never owned the whole land outright. The only piece of land he ever owned came from this field in Machpelah, bought from a Hittite. Now, what you need to understand is that this is a permanent down payment. You and I have all had the experience of maybe like renting an apartment or checking into a hotel room. Like we understand that those things are very temporary. We, we exchange some money for a place to stay, whether it be a few days or a few months or a few years. But if you're going to buy a cemetery, you're looking to stay somewhere. It's a little more permanent than your apartment. I mean, you're going to be depositing a dead body in the ground, and the idea is that it will stay there. Abraham at Machpelah, back in Genesis 26, lays a lot of money on the line and ensures that his people will constantly come back to this place. It is a permanent stake in the promised land. It's not temporary. You don't rent burial spaces. They stay there forever, or at least they're supposed to. And so Abraham knew that he was making a statement, and obviously his children, and in this case his grandchild, called on to the message, no, we will keep reorienting our family back to this place. No matter what happens, we will get back in this land. It will be ours. And so he gives all the specific instruction because he wants his children, who are, quite frankly, fat and happy in Egypt right now, To not feel satisfaction with that place, but to find satisfaction in the place that God had ultimately promised them. So he gives these specific instructions, and we'll see how they follow through with this. But look at the last verse there of the chapter. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I don't mean to sound morbid. I do occasionally think about death and what it would be like in the final moments. I pray to God that I have the faculty of mind to be in so command of of that moment that I can say what needs to be said to my children and then slip into eternity. God in his grace granted this man the lucidity, the clarity to say exactly what he wanted to say to his children and then almost as if on command He is gathered to his people. He draws up his feet in his bed and he dies. Not accidental last words, intentional last words. This would have a significant impact on the people of God. But these specific instructions are then followed by some special arrangements from Joseph. Some special arrangements. And you find those in verses 1 through 6. You'll you'll notice something interesting. Uh, Back right at verse 1, it says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and and wept over him and kissed him. Now, friends, this may seem like an extraneous detail, but you'll look back to Genesis 46, and one of the things that God assured Jacob with is that when he died, he would have his own son that he was departed from, like actually close his eyes in death, Genesis 46 verse 4. Here it happened exactly like God said it would. An important thing to remember, if God's going to be making some huge promises about where somebody's going to end up for their whole life, you want to know that he follows through. And even in this slight detail, like Joseph is there, he's the one that closes his eyes in death, and because he's the most politically powerful, he's the one that arranges what happens. And, And you'll see that it was no small feat. It says that Joseph, remember, he's second in command in Egypt, commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, friends, this may not mean much to you because we embalm people in these days. But that was very rare. In fact, there's only two people in the Bible that says we're embalmed, and that is Jacob and Joseph. All the rest of them were just buried. And so Jacob here actually commits his father with these, these full political honors that were afforded the wealthy in that day. If you look back in Egyptian culture and society and you wanted to know like what a typical burial would be like, basically they would salt a body and bury it. If you were a poor person, that's what you got, salt and dirt. 
But if you had a little more money, you may be able to get some kind of embalming going on. There would be some sense in which they would try to like, preserve you with spices and things of that nature. But what we have here is actually the, the, the Hebrew word that would be better recognized as mummification. Like, it's when someone is not only embalmed and their body is filled with spices from the inside, but then actually their skin is coated in this niter substance that hardens it and preserves it, and then they wrap it with linen. I mean, it's exactly what you're thinking of when you think of a mummy. And it was something of eternal religious significance to the Egyptians in particular, because they thought that a life well lived could end up in eternal life forever. It's why we see those um, big tombs, and they would actually put things in those pyramids, for example, that those people could find pleasure with. They would put food and, and spices and mementos so that people could enjoy the afterlife, supposedly. But what I want you to note here is that Joseph actually allows this political honor to be conferred upon his father, but he keeps from it the religious significance. It was normally the priests who would do the mummification. And who does Joseph get here? The physicians. He makes this purely a medical process. And for those of you who would be wondering, like, why would he ever allow this? Why doesn't he just go bury him? I want you to think practically for a second. And I don't mean to be morbid, but we are preaching on burial. If you had to carry a body through a desert for a multiple-day journey, wouldn't you rather have it mummified? (laughs) I mean, there's a utilitarian even like conception like this going on right here where he is practically allowing the honor of the day to be bestowed upon his father. And so they take the 30 days to prepare his body, and then the people weep for him an additional 40 days, bringing it up to 70. He gets full like military honors in this funeral, and you're wondering like what in the world is going on here? Why do they care so much about this guy's father? Well, it's all about the this guy. The this guy, Joseph, had been the one who had actually saved their lives. And so they wanted to do whatever it took to honor him. And so it was even a nationally recognized point of mourning. I mean, this was the guy that not only saved their lives, but consolidated Egypt's power in the land. We already read about that. He was one of the most significant political figures in ancient Near Eastern history. And so they afford this honor to his father. And so here we see already this proto-relationship of the Israeli and the outsider. (laughs) Already some type of mutual blessing taking place between Jew and Gentile, to use a phrase from later. It's beautiful. And what happens here is not only beautiful, but it is significant. Because there will be some unique providences in this burial event that will foreshadow some things to come. I want to see if you can pick up on it. Notice that they do this embalming. They wept for him 70 days. And verse 4 says, When the days of the weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh. Now you're probably wondering, why does he speak to the household of Pharaoh and not just to Pharaoh himself? Well, in most cultures like that, when you were participating in funeral rites, you were considered to be ritually unclean. Since Pharaoh is the equivalent of a god in that culture, he can't approach Pharaoh directly, and so he speaks to his courtiers, and he actually makes this request through them, and this is what he says, my, my father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. Now, you need to notice in just those few phrases that Joseph is expelling like every bit of political energy that he can to get this thing done. I mean, the first thing is that he appeals to the sentiment, you know, like my dad and his death, he wanted me to do this. The other thing that he mentions, though, is of religious significance, where he actually says that, hey, I swore to him this. Now, you got to think, an ancient Near Eastern mind, highly superstitious, you don't make a vow and don't fulfill it. And we'll ultimately see that this is what puts Pharaoh over the edge, because he's thinking, like, we just gave your dad a 70-day funeral, (laughs) and you want to take him somewhere else? And so Joseph actually says, no, I made a vow to him. He says, I will return. Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. And Joseph even withholds some information. When he quotes his dad, just an interesting little thing if you want to geek out on it, he says, 
He quotes him as saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Do you remember what he actually told him? He says, do not bury me in Egypt. He says that explicitly. But Joseph decides to withhold that information and just keep the positive focus on burying him in Canaan. And naturally, you know, because he has found favor in Pharaoh's eyes, Pharaoh gives in, verse 6, and Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Notice that. Go up. Seven different times in this passage we're going to see that phrase, go up. You'll see it again, just the next verse. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. Um, Verse 9, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It's interesting. Because this is the very verb that will be used throughout the book of Exodus to describe their leaving Egypt to go up into the promised land. Here, keep in mind, the Pentateuch is one book, Genesis to Deuteronomy. We already are going to be acquainted with the verbiage of these people leaving Egypt to go to where God had intended for them to go. You're going to see it over and over again in the book of Exodus, but maybe one of the climactic expressions of it comes from Exodus chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, and you'll see how this is an intentional preview of what's to come. Listen out for the verbs again. But God led up, same word, the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones with you from here. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> like what we have here is actually a preview of what would happen there. They're going to go up. They're going to carry the bones of beloved patriarch with them. And listen to this. They're going to do it in the same way that would be done years to come. Continue reading in your text there in Genesis. It says that Pharaoh answered, go up, bury your father. Then verse 7, Joseph went up to bury his father. And notice this. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt. Like, there's this huge triumphant like parade, as well as, it almost mentions the family as an afterthought, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. So you're supposed to get this idea of this huge nation, almost, on the move. You've got military, you've got political leaders, and they're on their way up, the same verb, to the promised land. And then verse 10, notice how they get there. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan, they lamented there a great and grievous lamentation. So they go seven days and they mourn his father. And notice what the Canaanites pick up on. They say in verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a very grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, they named the place Abel Mizram. It is beyond the Jordan. Notice that twice, beyond the Jordan. All right, are you ready for our invisible map again? I just wish that I'd probably give in to technology one day and just put a map on the screen. I'm sorry that I don't, but use your imagination. All right, you've got Egypt down here. You've got Canaan up here. You've got this river of Jordan that that kind of marks like the right side of Canaan. Guess what? It says that they go to a place that is beyond the Jordan, somewhere on the far side. And then the text is going to say that they enter into the promised land to Machpelah to bury their father. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament history whatsoever, what way do the Israelites take? Do they take the shortcut? Do they go as close as possible, like to the Mediterranean Sea and go straight into the promised land? Absolutely not. God says, don't go that way. You're going to go all the way around, basically on the far right of things, and then you're going to enter into the promised land from the Jordan. And that is exactly what takes place here. Friends, these aren't just coincidences. These are providences. God is actually trying to point them ahead to the place that he has promised them. Even in the details of how this barrier will work out, he's saying that where you are now, it's not where you ultimately will be. There is something better still to come. It's interesting to me that there's so much attention 
that's given to him in this funeral, we have basically the equivalent of one of the first state funerals, it seems, in all of history. Many of you are old enough to remember when Princess Diana died, and it seemed that a couple billion people watched her funeral. I mean, a whole world mourned over this woman, her potential, what happened in that time. Many consider that to be one of the finest state funerals ever given. And if you look back and try to find the history of this like international mourning of these state funerals, that if you look just something as simple as like the History Channel, they'll try to argue that, you know, the precedent for such an event actually goes back to the Duke of Wellington. Now, again, let's review your history. The Duke of Wellington is the guy that defeated Napoleon Bonaparte. So he stopped this, this spreading reign of the masses, and he was actually like a British hero, and so they planned this funeral for him, and like the details sound so interesting, especially when you say that this is the one that set the precedent for all state funerals to come. Let me read to you some details, and tell me if you just see some parallels. The funeral took two months to prepare, during which Wellington's body was embalmed and sealed inside four coffins, and a meandering two-mile route through London was plotted. On the day of the funeral, 12 black horses with black ostrich feather headdresses pulled an enormous bronze funeral car festooned with spears, helmet crests, and cannons like some immense juggernaut through the streets of London. Do you see the military significance of this? 10,000 marchers followed behind, some of whom were needed to help push the funeral car when it became stuck in the mud. And the watching and weeping audiences numbered more than 1.5 million people. The Illustrated London News declared it to have surpassed it, surpassed in significant grandeur any similar tribute to greatness ever offered in the world. It is said that this particular funeral, covered by the international press, created the blueprint for all massive public funerals to come. And so it was the one that put all others in motion. You know, I would argue that there was something even before Wellington. What we have here is an event of international significance. It is not just a few fledgling family members going up to the family gravesite. It is all the leaders in the nation of Egypt with all of the war horses accompanying them into this foreign land. I mean, this is a climactic event in which a seed of Abraham is being escorted into the land that was promised. And we talk of previews. It was not only, friends, a preview of the Exodus, but it is also a preview of that coming reign when the blessed one of God would be honored by the nations. There is intentional pointing forward, even in the Old Testament, where we just heard in the last chapter, hey, this is what's going to happen in the days to come. We already see pictures of how God's chosen seed would be honored by all the nations. And so, this burial event that seems so arcane, so out of touch with our real-world problems, is pointing somewhere. It's pointing ahead to that promised land, to that promised reign. We see it in the specific instructions and in the special arrangements, but we finally see it in the significant execution, the significant execution of the brothers in verses 12 through 14, notice it, and we're done. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Now, do you notice how it's given all those details again? Remember at the beginning, he says, hey, I want you to get buried here. And then he says like nine different things to modify it. You know what it says here? They took him to the burying place, and then it gives like five different things to modify it. It's letting you know that they buried him in the exact place where he said he was going to be buried. In that Arlington National Cemetery of the Patriarchs. They knew the significance of going to that very place. And it created expectations for them. And verse 14 says, they don't stay there, they go back. They don't get to enjoy the promise yet, but they do get a preview of it. Verse 14, after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers. 
and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Uh, Friends, it it is this text, actually, and as we continue to read into the last few verses of Genesis, that creates and validates that Hebrews 11 expectation that we read about just a few moments ago. Do you remember that? I don't know if you, you picked up on the significance of what Joseph was reading, but how when the author of Hebrews is trying to argue for these people who are being persecuted for their faith, hey, you need to hold on, you need to keep believing, what does he offer as an example of hope? He offers the patriarchs who found concrete hope in a place that God had promised them. That is what hope looks like. I know the old saying that we don't need to be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. But friends, I don't think I've yet to meet a person that was too heavenly minded. That is not the fear that we run into. (laughs) The fear we run into is the exact opposite of being so earthly minded we're no heavenly good. And yet here, this is the picture in Hebrews 11. What was happening in this place, this expectation that was being cast forward to a new land, not be happy in Egypt, but like find your satisfaction and your safety in the land still to come. That is pointing us forward. That is where our hope should ultimately lie. Even if we do have to go back to Egypt. Even if we're not in the promised land yet. Friends, we, we need to, and I'll just speak as pastorally as I can. And if I could see you at home, I would <laughs> communicate it to you better. We need to adjust the focal point of our hope. We need to adjust the focal point of our hope. This will not make us worse in this life, but better. I want you to fill in some blanks for me. If you want to know whether or not your hope is in the right place, I want you to fill in some blanks. You don't have to write these down. Just kind of answer in your mind. Things will be better when I'll be fine once this or that happens. If I can only make it to or we just need to get past what do you most naturally fill in the blanks with? We just need to get past the coronavirus? We just need to make it through the next political election. I just need to make it to my vacation. I just need to endure this particular sickness. If I could only get out of debt. I mean, like really, what fills in the blanks there? The Christian response is, if I can only make it to the promised land. If I can only hold out till Jesus gets back. If I could, could just make it to the experience of his promises in eternity. It's a different focal point. It's a different expectation of hope. See, we typically fill that in with political things and global things and relational things and parental things and physical things and emotional things, financial things. But the Christian hope, the believer's perspective, is that we fill in that blank with God reigning through His Son over the whole earth, securing peace among all peoples, and producing a productive society for His glory, leading to our physical and emotional well-being. Like all those things that you long for, all those things that you want, all those things that you crave and that you clamor for here and now, they, they point to something more satisfying. Something that God has promised you not yet, but still to come. With that day in mind, how do we live in this day? Let me revisit Lewis's argument again. Maybe you've heard that phrase that I mentioned earlier. If I find in myself an experience which this world cannot satisfy. But let me put it in its context. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So, a baby feels hunger. Well, what does that prove? That there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. (laughs) You have a longing, and it makes sense that there's something real that can satisfy that. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... 
whether it be half a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts or a European vacation or the next political cycle. Just fill in your own blanks there. If I find in myself an experience which this world cannot satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy. But they were only to arouse it. They were to suggest the real thing. And if that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they were only a kind of copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Friends, where do you feel most at home? Where is that place in which you ultimately anchor your security, your satisfaction, your hope, and your rest? Is it an event? Is it a place? As I assure you that the things on this earth will never fully and finally satisfy. If, if things, by the way, just be transparent for a moment, if things seem kind of broken right now, like, if you're really discouraged right now at the way things were, just talking to someone earlier, I think this COVID thing has been good for us insofar as at, when it first started, nobody had any spiritual expectations. They were just thinking, we're Americans, we can wait this out. All the other countries got over it in a couple months, we will too. And unlike 9-11, which immediately, like, got everybody thinking about the Lord and sin and, like, people were considering, like, repentance and we needed to turn to the Lord. You know what everyone in the United States was doing? <laughs> like, hey, I'm just going to watch some Netflix and we'll get through this. Oh, I get to order in now. I get to play games with my family. Like, that was the conversation that I was hearing. I wasn't hearing a, oh, no, we need Jesus to come back. It was just a, well, this is no big deal. And guess what? It happened just like we thought it would. Uh, things started getting better, it seemed. Everybody's feeling a little more freedom. They're feeling a little more comfortable. And guess what? We made it through the crisis without having to depend on Christ. This time, admittedly, it feels a little different. Now it's like people have been punched in the gut. I mean, I look at the number of people that are here today, and I can tell that there are obviously a lot of really concerned people, and rightfully so. And it's frustrating. It's disappointing. And it should be. Because this isn't our home. This isn't our home. God actually intends for us to look somewhere else. Not this earth, but the new earth. Not this land, but the promised land. That's how Christians function. That's how Christians find their hope. How do you know, by the way, if your hope is actually anchored in the promised land and not this, just this one? I'll give you these two things as a test for your own heart, your own soul. I think you could tell primarily by what stirs you up and what calms you down. What stirs you up and what calms you down. There's this interesting uh, passage in Matthew chapter 6. It's very famous. And Jesus is preaching to those who are his followers or would be his followers. He's addressing the citizens of the kingdom and he's telling them what his ethic is in his kingdom, how you live. And, and one of the interesting things that he says about those who will be his followers is, is that they actually are stirred up differently than other people are in the day-to-day -day issues of life. So Matthew chapter 6, and you have this passage where he actually talks about how people spend their money. Look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. It's King James. It just comes out of me, folks. Let me read the, the Bible verse that's actually here. <laughs> Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he's going to talk about how you can only really focus on one thing at a time, and you can only really serve one slave owner at a time. And he ends up saying this at the very end, verse 24, you cannot serve or you cannot be a slave to God and money. You kind of have to make a decision. So with all of the money that we get to make, guess what? How do we know if our hope is in the right place? Because we're trying to invest it in things that God would have us invest in and not just on things that would satisfy us here and now. Now, that's what we do with abundance, but that stirs us up. You know, like we get excited when we make a lot of money because we get to spend it. So where does it go? (laughs) But the other thing that he actually mentions here is not just when we have moments of plenty, but also when we just need to work and we're trying to survive. And you continue reading through Matthew 6, and he says, hey, don't be anxious for anything. Don't worry. Don't fret. You're going to live. It's going to be okay. Your heavenly Father is watching after you. And do you know how he sums up the argument? But seek you first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. The citizen of the kingdom is stirred up by the king and his kingdom, not just about their resources. How do you know that your heart is in the right place? It is because you're looking to invest your resources, and that's not just money, friends. It also includes time and energy. Your resources invested in the king and his kingdom. And for some of you, that should be comforting. For some of you, that should be challenging. What stirs you up? What would stir up the people of God in the Old Testament was not the land that they were in, but the land that they were promised. And so should it be with us. There's a second test that you can apply to yourself. Not only what stirs you up, but what calms you down. What calms you down. Jesus is about to leave his disciples It's clear. He makes it clear to them. And in particular, Thomas is going to ask them, like, where are you going? What are we going to do? He's he's panicking here. And actually, excuse me, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. How does he assure them? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you away to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And this is where Thomas speaks up. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What calms you down? Well, what calmed the original followers of Jesus down was supposed to be this. I have a place. I am preparing it for you. And you will enter into that place through me. Friends, our hope is actually not in the place. (laughs) It's in Christ who brings us into that place. What calms you down? Is it the assurance of the future presence of Christ? Or is it the hope of the next vacation or the next political cycle? A readjusted hope, Christian hope, finds hope in Christ. They are calmed down by the promise that he will bring them to himself. I I, I can't tell. I don't know who you are, where you're from. I know many of you. I don't know some of you. But I will not take for granted at all that some think that just because they would come to a place like a church, that they're somehow a Christian. When John 14 actually says, no, the place that you're really looking to get to isn't like the four walls of a church building, but it's actually the place promised and that can only be entered into through Jesus alone. If you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ alone, you have an empty hope. Whatever it is that satisfies you, will only last as long as the event itself, and then you'll be looking again. But I assure you, friends, Jesus offers a water that will quench your thirst. He offers a bread that truly satisfies. And so I end with this reminder from our Lord. You may remember it. In Luke chapter 22, he said to those who would follow him that he's going to give them this this meal. And it's supposed to be like a reminder a reminder of this meal that they will enjoy in his home, in his place, 
one day soon to come. And this is an aspect of communion, by the way, that we often neglect, but I think it's worthy of our attention. Look here, and we'll prepare for communion together. Luke chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. Notice what he says to his followers. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Verse 18, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, did you know that even when it comes to adjusting our hope, what we're about to do right now in partaking of this little piece of bread and drinking this little bit of juice is actually not just a reflection on what Christ has already done, but it's also an anticipation of what he will do. This is the appetizer. The family meal is soon to come. We get a preview of what Christ has offered through this, where we're reminded of his broken body and his shed blood for the remission of our sins, and which enables us to enter into this place. And yet, we're not there yet. We're still waiting for him to ultimately provide. And so our hope points to a place to come. Let's pray. Father, adjust our hearts in the right place. We need it in these days. We're too often, Lord, looking at the short term. We're too often looking at the temporal, the transitional. I pray that you would, Lord, arrest our attention, that you would focus us upon yourself, that even, Lord, those who are here that may not yet know you in a saving relationship, that they would find satisfaction in Christ, that they would turn from their sin. And for those who do know you, Lord, may they be reminded of the sweetness and satisfaction that is provided in Christ and the place that he has promised, and that meal that we will one day fully and finally enjoy with him. Lord, keep our hearts, Lord, anchored in the promised land. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.